Like, if that's what you mean by social hierarchy, I think you're sort of strawmanning the liberal. <laughs> I don't think the liberal thinks that people aren't ever different. They just think that wealthy white men are not the people that should always be occupying the most esteemed positions. Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm a scholar, writer, and translator who specializes in political theology, the intersection of religion and politics. Joining me for her third appearance and one of my favorite guests is Dr. Holly Lawford-Smith, who is an associate professor in political philosophy in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. Holly, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. I'm, um, I'm looking forward to talking to you about this uh, new topic. Well, there you go. Interestingly, you're one step ahead of me because I was going to, <laughs> as a sort of entree into our discussion, just mention that in our first discussion, which is uh, at least two years ago now, I think, I think so, we yeah. tackled the transgender issue, which I guess you're probably best known for these days, yeah. for good or for ill. Yep. And in the second one, we took a deep dive into your book, Gender Critical Feminism. Yep. And in this one, we're taking a, com a complete departure from those two. And we're actually going to have a conversation about Edmund Burke's reflections on the revolution in France, which is to really just say that we're going to embark on a conversation about conservatism yeah. to some extent, which is, but I think, also new territory for you, Holly. It is, yeah. Well, the way I've been thinking about it is that you very kindly subjected yourself to my world and my thoughts twice in a row. Um, <laughs> and now we're sort of like turning the tables at least a little bit where I'm going to try and um, talk to you about something closer to, to your interests. And also, it's really great timing for me because I'm considering starting a new big project um, relating to conservatism and the sort of liberal capital L liberal political party tradition. I haven't quite decided and I haven't quite worked out the details, but this is one of the books that I wanted to read first. I've got a big bookshelf now full of things I need to read, but um, yeah, it's cool. It's really good timing that we can talk about this and that might might be the first step in my, my next long journey. Okay, awesome. Now, before we do get into it, because you are uh, someone of some notoriety in the Australian context, I think it's fair to to say, and uh, people who are familiar with your work and have heard you on the podcast before might be dying to at least get a, a little tidbit of information about uh, the <laughs> tumultuous life of Holly Lawford-Smith. Now, some listeners, uh, as I have, have probably read in the Australian and maybe other news uh, sources in recent weeks uh, that... You now, I understand, have to be accompanied by a security guard just to teach your normal lecture in feminism at the University of Melbourne. Uh, mm. What on earth is going on? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a pretty strange and surreal situation. Um, so feminism runs as a three-week intensive, so it's four days a week for three weeks. It's a normal course just really squashed down uh, into the winter term. Um, it's actually the lectures are pre-recorded and their students watch them in their own time, but we meet for tutorials. 
uh, and we had to have security this time around on all three tutorial groups. Um, and the security guard was then, yeah, escorting me back to my office afterwards. And look, I mean, it's precautionary. So it's not necessarily the case that there was a real threat that the university was responding to. So it's, I don't want to overstate. Yes, I had security. We don't really know for sure what threats that security headed off. I think it, it acts as a deterrent, right? So at least they can't be protesters or disruptions, people coming into the room and yelling stupid things or w- whatever level of threat there might be, it, it sort of heads it off at the pass. But but maybe there wouldn't have been. <laughs> so it's really hard to know. I mean, I think the reason that the university decided it was necessary was because just, I think, a few days before we were about to start, there was a pretty serious act of vandalism on campus and it was related to these issues. And it was the smashing of a full kind of wall of glass of a public facing building of the university. So pretty serious property damage. Um, And then on the first day of the course as well, that the activists had been out chalking their usual kind of anti-turf, anti-gender critical stuff all over the pavement outside the building where I teach. So that's enough evidence that there would have been some interest (laughs) but yeah it's hard to say right what the counterfactuals are like how serious the disruption or the um threat would have been but yes it was the first time for me teaching with security but of course not the first time for gender critical feminist academics because this has happened multiple times in the uk in the last few years and i think the thing that's perhaps most extraordinary about your situation is it's difficult to think of another academic discipline these days that would require security uh, or where there's a security risk just to teach because you're teaching, you stand in a tradition that comes out of the radical left, right, to some extent. And so it's, it's, uh, you know, looking at this from the outside, it's just, uh, it's baffling and gobsmacking that you as a gender critical feminist, you're not some neo-Nazi or right winger. Yeah. Is that some, uh, real, I take your point, we don't know if maybe nothing would have happened, but it's at least a real enough threat that the university took precautions from other left-wing yeah. uh, radical activists, only they, this time trans activists. Well, I mean, I guess there's some things where we don't hear about them. So one thing I do know is that there's often disruption in the sense of like, filling the room and standing at the back with hostile banners and so on in talks that are um, critical of prostitution. Uh, So that actually does happen and it is radical leftists, um, the sort of pro-sex work, sex sex workers working. Often I think those lobbyists are paid from what I've been told. So there's a sort of pro-prostitution lobby that are like trying to tamp down on any opposition that might affect the sort of real politics of that industry. But I just think it doesn't make the front pages. So someone tries to give a talk with a radical feminist or Nordic model perspective on prostitution and the talk gets disrupted or there's these like very hostile activists in the room, but but no one cares because that's kind of routine or it just for whatever reason doesn't make it to the press. So I don't think it's the only case where there's this kind of disruption, but maybe it's one of the most serious cases because with gender critical stuff, the optics of it are so bad and it's these sort of aggressive men often dressed like in this Antifa black bloc masked 
kind of cowardly, like anonymity style thing, but it's, it's often men there being really aggressive to women. And I mm-hmm. think that makes it feel much more threatening because of course we know that there's a reality of some proportion of men being willing to enact violence against women in a way that maybe just like having a really fierce moral and emotional disagreement over sex work still doesn't necessarily feel like it's going to erupt into violence. So I think with the gender critical stuff, it does feel very much on the knife's edge where, you know, someone like Julie Bindle will be giving a talk and then there was a man claiming to be a woman who literally lunged at her trying to punch her and the security just sort of headed her off after Mm -hmm. an event, headed this man off and avoided the altercation. But he would have punched her if he could have. So I think we're all sort of on edge thinking, yeah, these are really angry men. They feel really entitled um, to what a lot of society have told them they deserve. And they see these women speaking against them as like a sort of a really serious moral threat. They think they have a just cause in like retaliating or whatever. So that is, yeah, that is something where it's like intra-left, but it has a bit different dynamics to it, I think. Yeah. And this actually is relevant to Burke's reflections on the revolution in France in a certain kind of way, because he is critiquing a certain kind of radical revolutionary uh, spirit and intent. And there are many different ways to interpret this book, but one of them, and I'm sure we'll get into this, is he's he's not against change and reform. He says uh, at one very famous point that change is really the means of the survival of any uh, society, but he's for a certain type of prudent, cautious, uh, careful and considered change compared to the burn them all down type of change. Now, Holly, just before we do dive into reflections, because we've never really addressed this head on in any of our previous conversations, and I think it might be useful for people to to know, uh, I mean, just briefly, how would you describe your own political philosophy just in terms of all the isms and the, the general conventional spectrum of political isms, if you like, that we're all f- familiar with? Yeah, I think I have probably a, a more annoying answer to this than you might like or than your listeners might like. But the, the easy answer in terms of the political practice is that I think I'm located somewhere on the left. I've tended to historically vote Labour or the Greens. And at the moment, I'm extremely like disenchanted. I'm sort of in a period because I'm so much into f- feminism and feminist theory that it's not clear to me whether uh, left-wing men across the spectrum and right-wing men across the spectrum, who's worse? I have no idea who's worse. I think they're equally bad in different ways. So I feel very disenchanted and kind of unsure. That's just where I am like in terms of very practical matters. In terms of my political philosophy, I know there are people who could just sort of like Peter Singer who could just confidently tell you like I'm a consequentialist of this kind and I follow rules and whatever. I've sort of never been like that. And there's a sense in which I've never been like that about almost any philosophy. And 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 it and it's strange. I, my students asked me this recently. We had this debrief after our course finished last sem- last semester and they were like, "Okay, now that the course is over, like tell us what your moral philosophy is. <laughs> like they wanted to know, oh, I've been teaching impartially, but what's my real view? Like, am I a down to like type deontological views? And I was like, I actually I don't. And I I almost don't want to make up my mind because philosophy becomes boring after that. You know, if you just know your view 
and then you spend the rest of your life just like doggedly applying it to things intellectually that is so tedious. And I was trying to think about this last night, like, because, you know, you you let me con- consider your questions <laughs> in advance. And I was thinking, what would I say here? Um, it's not like I never make up my mind, right? Because I have launched myself into feminism and mm. I've made up my mind. It's not like I just think, well, d- in a detached way, these positions are interesting and here's some arguments. No, I'm I'm a radical feminist. So I do sometimes tie my, what is that called? Flag to the mast or whatever it's called. But I haven't done that despite all my sort of training and, and teaching and so on in political philosophy. I haven't done that. So I, I could tell you I have some sympathies toward, yeah, small L liberal views and egalitarianism and whatever. And 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 I noticed some of that in reading Burke that I, whenever he was classist, I would sort of, Ugh, yuck. <laughs> and so I would I'd circle it, right? So there's stuff I want to talk about there where it's clear that I have these like moral intuitions or preferences, but I just, I can't tell you like I'm a libertarian or I'm a um, radical left leaning towards socialism or whatever. I'm, I'm just not. Um, yeah. I don't know yet. And I maybe don't, don't want to decide ever, at least like, or until just before I die, maybe. <laughs> All right, 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 right at the point where it'll only be of interest to your biographers <laughs> and no one else. And, and exactly. Low consequence. And, yeah. and at the last minute, she comes out as a conservative. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe after this next project, right? Because then I would have really worked through the whole spectrum. Because I, I mean, this is also a thing about the university being left biased philosophy is very much like all of my political philosophy education of course I've read Nozick but I've mainly read Rawls and I've mainly been taught in the tradition of people like Rawls and the the egalitarians and the cosmopolitans and the open borders people and the it's just very left biased so I feel like I need a corrective to that I need to have a sense of what the whole spectrum of views are before I could possibly make up my mind and this next project if I if I end up doing it will be be part of that um process yeah okay well i think that that still serves as the clarification that just gives some people some kind of sense of where you may be approaching uh burke's reflections now if i'm not mistaken holly this was the first time you've read it you probably all all said that just before we worked into it and we will dive into some of the ideas in this most famous text from this man who is regarded as the godfather of conservatism, although he famously never used the term and uh, may have been a bit surprised because he stood in the Whig tradition at the time. But I think he did use the term, by the way. I think there was he uses one the verb conserve, but he doesn't use the noun conservatism. Are you certain? Because I feel like I found it once in the book and circled it a lot. Like I probably can't find it now, but I feel like it was there once. Well, I've, I mean, of course, I could be <laughs> wrong. I don't uh, think so because okay. in my – I haven't done an exhaustive historiographical study, but I, I am interested a lot in the genealogy of terms on the right. And yeah. as far as I can tell, the term conservatism first yeah. enters the English lexicon in the 1820s. Okay. Um, I should defer to you here because you've read it more than me, but I am going to try and prove you wrong after we stop recording. <laughs> well, I, look, look, it wouldn't be the first time I've been wrong. So <laughs> uh, it's possible. But in any event, he does use the term conserve and he does oh, use sorry. it. sorry. In... No, you're right. It's conservation. It's a sure principle of conservation. That's what yeah. I said. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But he does use conservation and the verb conserve 
in yeah. in in a fashion that that does speak to what we now understand by the term conservatism. Yes. Uh, now, Polly, just before we do get into the specificities, although how could you get more specifical? <laughs> that's not a word. <laughs> then this idea of the, the term, term conservative and conservatism. But yeah, I'd just be interested as someone who's not a conservative who has a. I mean, it's just so fascinating to talk to someone coming out of the radical feminist tradition reading Burke, and I was quite excited that you were willing to to do it because I'm just genuinely interested to get an intelligent view from outside of the yeah. the tribe, as it as it were. Uh, hit me with some just general initial overall impressions of the experience of reading it. Yeah. I thought it was fascinating. So like as a sort of historical artifact, there were lots of things I didn't fully understand about the context. So like Google was my friend just because I'm not a historian. And so there were, there were some somewhat sort of confusing, um, you know, the dialectic was slightly confusing to me initially because it was like, well, we in the U we in Britain at the time had this revolution, but now you've got a revolution, but you're calling it a revolution and you're pretending that it's like our revolution, but it's not. <laughs> And your one's a threat to our one, but we're, we're going to call all of them capital R revolution. So to go and then find out what was their one about and what's this new one about and why are they different. So that was a bit like it took a bit of getting my head around, like finding the details of the history to see exactly what he's reacting to and why that seems a threat to him. So that was fascinating as a kind of thing of its time and gave me a lot of new like um, things to think about. One thing I found really interesting there and which relates to sort of doing, I think in political philosophy, we tend to make this very stark distinction between ideal and non-ideal theory. And we're often sort of critical of the utopians. And one thing I thought was really interesting about the reflections was like, he seemed to be responding from a kind of place of fear or trepidation about how things will pan out for France post-revolution but he was speculating right and so it was really interesting to track the sorts of things he was worried about and which of those things turned out to be like legitimate worries versus not at all so some of that was very funny it was like he was so worried about paper money he was completely obsessed about this problem of going from the coin to paper money and you think who cares (laughs) and so you have to try to put yourself in the headspace 200 years ago of how that might look like a threat. And I think there's a really cool lesson there of how really careful, critical people just doing their best, right, to think about how things might work out and what might be good and what might be bad and still the limitations of that vision. So that was one major thing that I thought was kind of super interesting um, throughout. Uh, There are two other things. Maybe I just mentioned them all and then we can, whatever you want to pick up on. Another thing that I thought was just extremely interesting, and again, to me as like someone interested in, yeah, political philosophy and social justice and um, and feminism actually, was this like reform versus revolution point. So you've sort of mentioned it already that there's this, um, there's a willingness to countenance change, but there's a very strong sense about how that change should happen. And I would describe that as, an emphasis on reform rather than revolution. So he seemed to be really like, I think there was room in some passages for like in the most extreme, terrible injustice and despotism, maybe revolution, but in almost all other cases, 
we should be approaching things by conserving what is good about what we have and changing what is bad. And we should be really cautious and meticulous about figuring out of what we have, which is which. And for me, that's so interesting because you do get this sort of leftist impulse even today of like, oh, this stuff that loads of people are flourishing under, it's all terrible and racist and transphobic and sexist and we need to burn it all to the ground and start again. And some of the second wave feminists had that view, right? They thought we're in a patriarchy and they would never countenance slow reform. They thought that that was the the lib femmes being doormats or whatever. They want they want revolution. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so that for me, that theme, of course, he was talking about it in the context of like, how should the French have approached their sense of wanting to shift from monarchy to democracy? And he was kind of arguing there was not a just cause for revolution instead of reform, if I'm reading it all correctly. But that could be applied to any debate now. Like his reflections are just as relevant to thinking about black, like anti-black injustice in the US and the BLM riots or feminist methods now. Like would would Solanus's scum manifesto advocating for women to take up, like stalk their prey, like to take up violence against men now, that's a revolutionary tactic. So would that be justified in the interests of overthrowing patriarchy? So that's super cool, like those kind of questions. Yeah. Um, and then the third thing, and then I'll, I'll stop talking, uh, that I sort of saw and thought was cool was just this question about like what are the right values for our society to have for us to have together. And there were things that he mentioned um, or sort of explained the case for that I, yeah, I think maybe we do give a bit short shrift to. So the one that stood out to me the most was like reverence. Or I almost put it in like Kantian terms when I read the aesthetics. It was like those Kant talks about the sense of the sublime, like when you stand in front of the ocean and you contemplate the vastness and majesty of the ocean. Burke speaks like that about the monarchy. He's got this passage about the queen. It's just amazing. Like he um, actually almost wonder if I'll be able to find the bit because I think I wrote the page down. Was this his um, kind of fawning over the French? uh, Exactly. It's about the... the, the No finesse or whatever it was. uh. Exactly. Um, 167. I'll stop if I can't. Oh yeah, okay. He said he says um it's now sixteen or seventeen years since I saw the Queen of France, then the Dauphiness at Versailles, and surely never lighted on this orb, which she hardly seemed to touch, a more delightful vision. I saw her just above the horizon, decorating and cheering the elevated sphere she just began to move in, glittering like the morning star, full of life and splendor and joy. Oh, what a revolution. <laughs> Like literally, oh, exclamation mark. And there's bits like that where he talks about sort of um, the the descent through the royal line, that the fact that you can trace it all the way back through hundreds of years as this like continuous monarchy. And I think the idea is supposed to be like these things they are majestic, like they mm. they are sublime, but and and we should have this kind of respect and reverence and awe for them. And I couldn't quite tell. Maybe some of that is like more aesthetic than political, but they there did seem to be like yeah values like that in here. 
that I think the sort of contemporary small L liberals and the like egalitarians just would not countenance as values at all. <laughs> or maybe they would, but yeah. only in the aesthetic realm, but not in the realm of things like hereditary culture and tradition or whatever. So those are the things that really stood out to me. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think uh, what he really reveals, even though he perhaps was unaware of it in writing um, these words, and that passage really jumped out, jumped out at me too, and I thought of you as I was reading it. I thought, <laughs> oh, he's going to find this... <laughs> reverence for the, this female figure really interesting but yeah um, and that is the, that it does make you cognizant that liberalism really strips out the majestic from politics and it makes it very uh, utilitarian functional yes it's all about efficiency efficacy and don't get me wrong I <laughs> I have a soft spot for some of that I'd like to be in a functioning uh, system, but it, it makes you realize that there's something lost when the state assumes an agnostic position, which is what the liberal state does in theory towards all matters, all question, all existential moral questions of yeah. substance, and it it then leaves it alone to the citizen. And and if we just follow the history, whether this is inevitable or not, or deterministic, I don't know. But the, the pattern seems to have been in Western liberal democracies that. Religion then retreats to the background because yeah. one thing worth noting here is that for Burke in his time, it's assumed that religion serves this function and the whole monarchy is wrapped up in religion. If you watch the crowning of King Charles, I mean, it's literally yeah. an Anglican liturgical service in a cathedral. <laughs> and so that all that reverence, worship, uh, and the kind of pomp and ceremony and pizzazz and aesthetic uh the state gets out of that business and it yeah. seems this is i i just pose this as a sort of theoretical question i don't know the the answer and i ask this as a christian who still this is one thing that resonates with me with burke i, I get this kind of thing and i get it actually in the church on a sunday but it's virtually the only place i get it in contemporary society and many churches have lost this uh sensibility too i have to say uh in the protestant tradition uh is that it seems like once the state gets out of this business, the citizens don't keep it going. They, over time, leave it. And maybe that there's something about the liberal order, I guess, because it then influences the way we teach kids at school and the way parents, uh, at some point in that liberal journey, yeah. everyone uh, is fed on the, the kind of aura of liberalism. And, and it becomes something very monochromatic, to me yeah. and super successful don't get me wrong in i mean it's generated a lot of economic prosperity some inequality as well but it, it does make you realize uh, you know that that world burke talks about is quite a foreign alien world to you and me i would i would say yeah. and i and i as a conservative i say something has been lost there i don't i don't want to worship my state i think it can go too far i don't want to live in a theocracy but just fearing politics as this kind of mundane business i don't know it's just something is lost no i think that's right so obviously the individual could reintroduce that for themselves and just as you were saying that i thought that's actually really interesting because there's a there's a sense in which i i've done that for myself like mm -hmm. so um feeling very connected intellectually to the 
feminist tradition. So I've spent more time on the second wave text than the first wave. But of course, I've also gone back to like the 1400s and found Christine de Pizan and like that later found Mary Wollstonecraft actually around the time of Burke. Um, You know, so I, I can do that thing as an individual of connecting myself to a long intellectual tradition and lineage and see myself as part of a tradition and having a hereditary, like they've passed this culture down to me and I can get that sense of like majesty and grandness of the historical tradition and lineage in which I belong. And even just a very contemporary example there was a piece about my situation with the security guards and whatever recently in the Australian by Janet Albrechtson. And she started it by telling about this story about Sydney's philosophy department introducing feminism for the first time, I think. I can't remember what year that was, maybe around the 80s. But again, just that framing, it was like, oh yeah, now I'm I'm sort of in this like cool tradition of like these people that are really like fighting for feminism on their Australian campus. And so, but the point is like, not every individual is going to, in a liberal society that says any conception of the good you happen to want to pursue so long as you're not harming others is fine by us. Of course, not every individual is going to find that sort of lineage and sense of place and tradition and meaning. It's just sort of a lucky accident that I've found it. And the fact that I can relate my experience to that shows there is value in that and maybe something has been lost or at least that's one of the things that are good. Like maybe it's pluralistic so you can find good that way but you can also find it in many other ways. The thing that I would like resist in your thought, I think, is like whether that has to be the state. So could could it be that like we somehow reintroduce that we have a secular state, we still have this kind of separation of church and state but there are more major social institutions that reintroduce that sense of majesty, whether it's political or religious or cultural or something else. Like, could we, could we bring that back to the people as something that's morally important and valuable, but yet doesn't require the state violating liberal neutrality and kind of buying back into a particular conception of the good like can we be liberals with a little sprinkling of conservatism or is that do we just have to choose or conservatives with a little sprinkling of liberalism exactly <laughs> yeah maybe yeah. but i'm just i'm asking which no no like, i know that it's a very good question because i think what, what one of the things we have to contend with today which is a consequence of liberalism is of course there's nothing to stop any person uh, putting themselves in connection with a tradition and forming right. a community that stands in the tradition. And this, again, I mean, this is kind of the bread, bread and butter of the historical churches, which are now some some of the they're, they're the last vestige of the oldest continuous traditions mm-hmm. <laughs> that we actually have in uh, Western liberal democracies. But you have discovered this your, yourself, which kind of makes you it, it it makes you a certain type of conservative, not not really in the <laughs> sort of political sense, but I mean you have connected yeah. yourself with a tradition of thought, yeah, and presumably you're part of a community of other feminists which yep. trace your line. And I think that I think humans need to feel connected to the past in some way, and I think this is 
this is something profound that, that the radical left just doesn't understand because yeah. I think they're completely future orientated. Yeah. And you think it's not it's not rocket science. People can and often do like to talk about their immediate family history, my parents, my grandparents, when and how my ancestors came to this uh, land. This is kind of uh, just yeah. common uh, human nature. But the thing is, and this is this is where the liberalism thing becomes both interesting and, and tricky. So in a sense, you and I are both conservatives just in the sort of plain English meaning of the the term, not the politically loaded term. But of course, we we belong to very different traditions. So yeah. your tradition is just not a part of my tradition and self-understanding. And my tradition, being born into this devout religious family and, uh, you know, grandparents and ancestors and this connection down the church is not your tradition. And so the one, one of the things you get with liberalism, which is quite different from Burke's day, you see he assumes a kind of hegemonic tradition, which I think could be assumed in late 18th century England, where the majority of people would have said they're Christians and probably yeah. were in support of the general political makeup and institutions. Yep. Uh, he's papering over a couple of obvious things like extreme sectarianism uh, towards Catholics, for example. So he, right. he's the Church of England guy, uh, originating the, the sort of Irish Anglican uh, uh church which is a complex piece i don't fully understand but that kind of world it does have its injustices in those days because the uh catholics did not enjoy the same rights as <laughs> anglicans and nor did uh those belonging to the dissenting traditions like presbyterians and baptists but uh setting that aside you know this is this is a big challenge for conservatives and i think this is why you get so much anxiety and fear and frustration and grievance because i think ultimately they do believe in the hegemonic tradition they want their they want all citizens to participate or at least respect and yeah. honor the kind of uh traditions that 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 they believe in and i don't think it's just purely and crassly self-centered i think many of them would say well we think this is positive for all people and so we, we think people will flourish in this system this is the ismos world view as well that all people will flourish in this in this uh system but uh, i i have great hesitation about that as a conservative uh myself and i think actually some form of freedom which is also supposed to be a conservative value although i think it's it gets a bit inconsistent on the right in many respects I think there's got to be a certain cultural freedom and it's it's down to conservatives to um, advocate for their particular yes. conception of the good life and invite other people to do it. And there, a lot of the bitching and moaning on the right is just sour grapes that no one's convinced by their particular vision. And I actually think there's a bit of this on the radical left too, which is why they go the coercive and sometimes oh, violent yeah. route because they can't persuade people. <laughs> I think that's right. But then it, does that mean that you're still because there's a sense in which like that's all compatible with what Burke was arguing against, right? Which is a liberal democracy. Um so 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 we have at the state level a kind of secular state committed to neutrality about conceptions of the good, who sees its role as just facilitating individuals to pursue their own good in their own way including in communion with others then you have your radical leftists trying to promulgate their vision of a utopia or a good society and attract others to their cause you have your yeah religious 
right or religious conservatives of whichever stripes kind of trying to promulgate their vision. But still, no matter how many adherents each of these polar polarized sides got, they're still operating under the umbrella of a liberal democracy, which is protecting the rights of the people who don't agree with those groups to do their own stuff in their own way. So I guess I guess I'm sort of I'm still curious about whether are you like ultimately committed to that way of things operating? And it's just that like maybe if the conservatives are successful, they'll attract a lot more people back to that way of living and sense of what has value and meaning. And maybe they'll get like there'll be more people with that set of values in our institutions, but we're still never becoming a religious state again. <laughs> like, and we're still never imposing that conception of the good on, say, people on the far left who disagree with it, just as we wouldn't want people on the far left. Unfortunately, they, they are, but we wouldn't want them imposing their conception of the good on, on conservatives. So, is that, a, are you, is that a fair way of kind of reading what you're saying or do you, are you actually ambivalent between the liberal neutrality of the state protecting conservatives and conservatives running the state? <laughs> I think my, my view, and this, this is hotly contested, so I wouldn't necessarily say this is a representative view yeah. these days, is that uh, I, I, I can't see any, I can't conceive of a top-down conservative state that doesn't undermine the very essence of what conservatism is supposed to be because it violates the human freedom principle and the free society principle. And so that that then shifts the focus away from politics more to culture. And so okay, good. from yeah. my perspective, conservatism is not and doesn't need to be, and, and I don't think actually was, uh, on my reading of Burke and others that stand in his tradition, like in particular Russell Kirk, the great 20th century American popularizer, synthesizer, and updater of Burke, I don't think conservatism is, in the first instance, a political ideology. I think it's a general disposition and outlook of life. I've sometimes said uh, an entire mode of being. Now, if that's true, as long as there's a, a society is generally free it should be possible for conservatives to happily raise their family in a conservative style and milieu to have their conservative beliefs to go and worship the way the way they want to worship to uh, organize you know write blogs and do podcasts and do all that kind of stuff now what does that mean it means in my view and this this is where i'm definitely on the 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 margins of where the 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 heart of contemporary conservatism is to my dismay that uh, I think a liberal political order is the best option available. It's imperfect, but I, I don't see a better, a better, I don't see an alternative really, a viable alternative to that in which the conservative can be a conservative yeah. without undermining the key tenets of their, their faith. And I think ultimately the radical left and the, the far right are both illiberal at heart and yeah. they're basically dissatisfied because the, the liberal freedom doesn't produce the outcome that they want. What I don't understand is why neither can just comfortably live in their own skin. Why why yeah. why do they have to have huge numbers of people agreeing with them? <laughs> and maybe yeah. this is a temperamental thing, but I mean you and I 
you know, I think we could call each other friends. We've even met up in person. I just, uh, I mean, I find you fascinating to talk to. I don't need you. I have, yeah, I have to agree. no need to try and turn <laughs> you into a conservative. I mean, it's yeah. just, it, I can, for me, it's just easy to respect someone who has a different position and I don't want to dictate how you live your life. I just have no interest in that. I don't see how I could do that as a principled conservative. But this is really interesting because, I mean, so I have that same impulse, but we are in the minority, I think, when you look around. Um, And I think we're certainly in the minority on the left. And that's because disagreement, there's a certain sort of, I never know how to say that word, hubris or hubris. Hubris? (laughs) Hubris, yeah. With a U, with a Y? hubris i guess that's how you say it in english yeah okay good there's a certain sort of hubris among people on the left where they they just seem unable to have the view that many people have many different views of the world or what is good instead they many of them seem to think here is my morality and everyone else is evil (laughs) (laughs) and then because they moralize it so much and become extremely emotional about it they say yeah, who could possibly be evil? Who could be friends with an evil person? Who could countenance, yeah. oh, the policy of the Tories, which will steal poor people's bedrooms from them or whatever, like the, the, the housing tax policy thing. So it's like, yeah, there just seems to be this real lack of an ability to see and respect differences of opinion and not to constantly like really moralize them in these kind of borderline hysterical ways and I just I don't know what that is I don't know I don't know what that is and I I I kind of despair of it because I see it among really intelligent really well credentialed people um yeah you know what it is I I totally agree and you and you I'm sorry to say you get this on the right too okay uh to some extent it's linking ideas and views to character in, in a way that doesn't kind of work intellectually like it's in a it's a it's a sort of a priori view that says once i know holly lawford smith's position yeah on gender pronouns i know she's a bad and evil person it doesn't matter the empirical reality has doesn't matter you you could be the kindest most loving charitable caring person in the world you could agree with them on 99 percent of issues but they 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 have this view that that no reasonable person worthy of respect could hold position X. And so then they make a character assessment, but it's yeah. a priori because they often don't even know you, obviously. Yeah. And how can you judge someone's character without even knowing them? Yeah, I mean, maybe that is the right explanation, but, but then what? Then it's just so stupid, right? Like, of <laughs> course you cannot deduce backwards from someone's position what their reasons were for arriving at it. And if we were slightly charitable we would understand that, yeah, people are, most people are acting in good faith. Most people have, yeah, have thought about things and arrived at things for a particular reason. And it's coming from a whole constellation of their other views and commitments. And also like, there's a, you know, do we really have a choice? Like, I'm not sure that I chose radical feminism. I think I exposed myself to a lot of different texts and you know, interviews and memoirs and whatever else. And I, and I arrived at the position that seemed intellectually to me the most coherent. I didn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't a choice. It wasn't, 
I don't even know if I would say it's voluntary. And so in what sense can that be taken to be a reflection on my character? If anything, so long as a person was kind of evidence responsive and like followed the norms for reaching beliefs and gaining knowledge, which a lot of us do and reach different conclusions, there should be no character implications. So it's, I don't know, is it just, yeah, a lot of people are just being sloppy and stupid in their reasoning about other people, like and people who disagree with them? Is that the thing that we need to tackle? I don't know. Yeah, I just, I do feel some sort of sense of despair about that um, situation that we're in. I share your despair and I, I, I don't know what, the, why, why, why this particular phenomenon now is a complex question that we can't fully resolve here but i would let's just if if i can let's move into yeah. a different get back to burke yeah sure uh here's a bit of a foil for our conversation which is fine but i'd be just really interested to see how you respond and react to a couple of more a couple of other discrete ideas which i would regard as kind of classic tenets of yep. conservatism the kind of traditional conservatism that i would tie myself to which which i stress uh like you that we we feel like a besieged minority uh on the right with some uh shall we say uncomfortable bedfellows these days so that he has this really interesting idea of what he calls regulated liberty Mm -hmm. and this is really one of those uh dividing walls to me between libertarianism and conservatism one of a number where they are completely incompatible not that a lot of people realize that these days so the conservative view of liberty is liberty is great but it really only works within some kind of system of order of laws and traditions because just absolute liberty (laughs) doesn't really give you anywhere to go and uh your favorite philosopher jordan peterson (laughs) interesting interesting, uh, thing to to say you know, I think for our next conversation, I'm going to make you listen to a Jordan Peterson video because I actually think it'd be fascinating to discuss that. We can you, do one of those. Um, those you might uh, be ready spicy, for him after doing Burke. We can do one of those spicy YouTube react videos, like oh yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Unhinged <laughs> feminist reacts to <laughs> exactly. grand master Jordan P- Peterson or something. <laughs> we can try and bait him into a response so that I get. Yeah, famous. yeah, but the. Um, <laughs> In any event, he, he just, I just, I just, I mean, that was just a little bit of humor, but, but I got this, he cited the research that they've apparently they've done research and in a supermarket, there's an optimal level of choice. So if you give people a hundred different options of yeah. shampoo, it actually incapacitates them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that there's the, the optimal amount of choice is actually only about three. But I think the, there, there's this notion in liberalism that, that we want it's all about maximizing freedom and re- removing the restrictions. But yeah. I think the conservative disposition that or view worldview that uh, Burke is on about is that, um, yes, freedom's great. I mean, he uses this term liberty a number of times and in, in he, he affirms it. And this is one of the, the chief principles of both libertarianism and the liberal tradition. Yeah. But he says liberty and order. And so this idea of regulated uh, liberty, and I read out a couple of quotes. He says, I love a manly, moral, (laughs) regulated liberty. Why is it manly, though? We'll talk about that later. Well, I'd be lying (laughs) if I said I didn't think of you when I read the term that that (laughs) manly, which pops up a few times. He says, circumstances 
give in reality to every political principle its distinguishing colour and discriminating effect. Yeah. I think there he's pointing to the fact that there's no such thing as abstract liberty in practice because yeah. nature itself imposes certain restrictions. And there's this kind of strange conceit about the absolutely autonomous individual who has to eat, poo, sleep, um, and you know, in order to live with other people, has to have some kind of legal framework. And you know, we don't have absolute freedom in the road rules because it just, for practical reasons, won't work. Yeah. And then he says, and here he's kind of, I think, getting a bit funny. This is just a piece of rhetoric, a rhetorical <laughs> question. Am I to congratulate an highwayman and murderer who has broke prison upon the recovery of his natural uh, rights? So, of course, it's an obvious point there. But, I mean, no one thinks anyone should have the freedom to rape, pillage, murder, steal. Every ism on the planet, to my knowledge, is just one of those points in, in agreement. And so I think... The conservative, and I speak here in the first person, is just skeptical of all this freedom language because it just seems very, you know, on the left and its version on the right in the form of libertarianism. It just seems totally unrealistic and untethered from the reality of nature and circumstances. And I, I think the the true human flourishing definitely needs liberty. No one's flourishing if they're a slave, obviously. But there, there's some kind of more complex balance. And I feel like, yeah, that set of quotes, like it almost sets things up to think like, while the left, and this is to some extent true, like the freedom or liberty is the main thing or the only thing they care about, whereas the right, you know, it's like liberty and or it's like liberty but, like whatever. But I think that's probably a false dichotomy if you think about the the liberal tradition and classical liberals that kind of today's versions of libertarianism and liberalism came out of. Because, I mean, the classic statement, I guess, is going to be someone like Mill, and Mill has the harm principle. That's mm. a version of liberty, but, right? So it's like pursue your own conception of the good in your own way, but within the constraints that your pursuit cannot encroach upon other people's pursuit of theirs. So that's, we set, and of course he notoriously didn't maybe give enough content to exactly what will count as a harm such that we can limit, limit your liberty for someone else's, but, but it, that is a formulation of liberty but, or liberty except when. And so I'm not sure that that actually really does distinguish the liberal from the conservative, even though there were lots of things in the book that was sort of offered up as further values. So maybe maybe it's going to then be like the, the left cares about liberty except when blah, 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 but then the right cares about, yeah, tradition and family and you could fill in like those words. And that almost in a sense tracks like something like the contemporary split Jonathan Haidt talks about between like, oh, the today's American liberals only care about harm and fairness, but the conservatives care about purity and authority and loyalty or whatever as well mm. um can i add something to this which i think segues it's still related to liberty but it segues into thinking about the liberty of the individual versus the way that the state ought to provide liberty to the individual so there's this bit really late on in the book and if you don't mind i'll just read the the bit so he says um the effects of the incapacity do you read this old shun 
<laughs> so I always feel embarrassed reading old-fashioned language. Shun by the popular leaders and all the great members of the Commonwealth are to be covered with the all-atoning name of liberty. In some people I see great liberty indeed, in many, if not in the most, an oppressive, degrading servitude. But what is liberty without wisdom and without virtue? It is the greatest of all possible evils, for it is folly, vice, and madness without tuition or restraint. Those who know what virtuous liberty is cannot bear to see it disgraced by incapable heads on account of their having high-sounding words in their mouths. Grand, swelling sentiments of liberty I am sure I do not despise. They warm the heart, they enlarge and liberalize our minds, they animate our courage in a time of conflict. But then he goes on, just over the page, to give freedom is still more easy. It is not necessary to, to guide. It only requires to let go the rein. But to form a free government, that is to temper together those opposite elements of liberty and restraint in one consistent work, requires much thought, deep reflection, and a sagacious, I don't know how to say that word, a sagacious, powerful, and combining mind. And to, I thought that was super interesting because it seemed to be saying there's a that, that like if you just care about individual liberty, like fine, let let them go. But there's some other thing about like how to set up a good state that facilitates and and empowers individual liberty. And this is where your earlier point of like balancing liberty as against restraint or as against these other values becomes super important. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. What do you have any? No, that, that's a really uh, good quote. And I have a few additional reflections. I mean, just when you're talking about Mill, yeah. you know, take the point. Obviously, there's the the harm principle. And <clears throat> even in libertarians, you know, there's a few there's a few sacred cows, your sort of, you know, property. Property, yeah. Including the fundamental property ownership over your own, own body and no one can violate that and the sanctity of... Uh, contracts, the holy sanctity of contracts, for example. Uh, but I think, it, it, you know, what I say to libertarians and liberals and progressives is wither self-restraint. So there, it's not a question of harm, yeah. but is there not a virtue? And I would say there is as a conservative in restraining the appetites and passions, whether they're sexual or to do with food or money or... Um, yeah, good. Even just tempering self-interest and trying to uh, think of others. And I have to say, I'm not sure. I think conservatism might be the only ism here that mm. is kind of trying to put its hand up and say. Self-restraint. Good. Again, it's not just like sheer tabula rasa freedom. Like there's some restraint is actually good for the human being. And you really, you really, I think know this as a parent and this is one reason why i think we have totally screwed up our new generations because they haven't been given the kind of discipline that i think children require to th to thrive now of course discipline can go too far and end up in trauma we all know that but uh you know saying no to your child when they want to hit their brother or sister with a sharp knife or something yeah you're sure you're curb curbing their freedom or even just they, they want the fifth chocolate of the day and saying no. Well, I mean, I'm not sure the harm principle is enough here. I think there's something else. No, I think uh, you're right. There's a, there's, a, there's a sense of like empowering people 
to be able to achieve their long-term goals versus their short-term desires. And it's not clear what principle the liberal can really offer to do that. And so, yeah, how can you pursue it? Like, I guess I'm trying to think what could they say, right? So your conception of the good is to produce a great work of literature. But every time you sit down to write, you just want to go on TikTok. That's yeah. <laughs> a lack of restraint, but it's about first order versus second order desires. Like you, you in the moment have this impulse, but of course, in the longer term, you want for yourself to write regularly such that you pursue and achieve this sense of what you find meaningful. Um, I guess there must be liberals who would take themselves to have resources to explain why giving in to short-term impulse or desire is bad because it it affects or hinders our capacity to achieve meaning or pursue our conceptions of the good. Mm. But I think you're right to point out that the harm principle alone wouldn't stop people like from from acting in that way. So what what yeah. what exactly is it? And at least the conservative has a name and an answer for that principle. As you say, it's self restraint or it's moderation or it's caution or whatever. Temperance. Um, Temperance, yeah. This was a virtue going all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, of course. Yeah. That was no, one of the big virtues was this kind of usually translated as temperance. I think the term is singratia. Uh, but, uh, do, you think that that, do you think that that virtue is distorted or undermined if it's ultimately put in terms of self-interest like I was just trying to do? Like, okay, we, we just tell people not to go on TikTok all the time because it's their own higher order desire to do something more meaningful with their time. <laughs> like, um, you know, to try to find ways, I guess I, I read a, a, a feminist paper about Rawls that was trying to say he lacks the ability to criticize any ends that people choose. He can only criticize the means to the end. So it's a flaw in the liberal conception that they have to take any ends that any person chooses for granted. And rationality and irrationality only come in at the instrumental point of pursuing the means to the ends. And this person was trying to argue, if I remember correctly, that there were actually some resources to criticize ends. I, I think, because um, that that uh, that's the only way I could think of that you could do it. You could you could try to yeah say yeah. it's just in terms of what you want. You're not getting what you want if you constantly give in to your impulses or. I think this Don't is actually, yeah, for me, this is the the fatal flaw in liberalism. And it's right. it's really, it's not the only, but it's perhaps the key reason why I could never actually be a liberal. Yeah. And that there's a distinction there. I'm a conservative who believes in a liberal political order, but not liberalism. Yes. And, and that's because I just find liberals and, and libertarians, just to keep ramming them together, <laughs> it just piss weak when it comes to people pursuing ends that are self-destructive they've just got nothing meaningful to say because they don't i see their their philosophical commitments just don't allow them yeah to step in and say hey buddy you're going to kill yourself or if you don't apply a bit of self-restraint or curb your appetites or if you pursue this end rather than this one you're pursuing it may lead to greater flourishing and uh happiness and peace and stability for you and you see, I think the conservative uh, believes in moral norms, and, yeah. and I do. And and I would say, as a 
as a Christian, actually, that the I think all this debate about what the impact of the retreat of religion, really Christianity in our political and cultural context, there's a huge debate about what what it has led to or not led to. And I, I'm, I'm skeptical of a lot of the, the claims. And I, and I think what it has done is actually much more set, subtle. Mm. I'd be interested in your response to, to this as an atheist, actually, because my point's not about the specificity of the moral claims, but there was a moral system of constraints and uh, definite positions on certain things and a concept that that you're somehow subordinate to a higher authority and that there are consequences, kind of cosmic consequences for the way you live. If you start to think about these ideas, what it gives people is a kind of, um, in theory, a kind of moral humility, a sense that there is right and wrong, a kind of cautious, so you're always factoring in the moral path and it's not just about what works for you, what works for others. It's kind of wrapped up into a framework. Now, again, forget about the specificity of what you think about sex outside of marriage and this view and that. Uh, the, what, I, what I say to atheists is I think the removal of that architecture uh, has left a gap that hasn't really been filled. This kind of goes back to my point about the agnosticism of liberalism. And so mm. now it, it means that the emphasis on sheer liberty has come to the fore and every child is told, yeah, go for it, whatever, whoever you want to be. And I would say to you, Holly, this is why we have men who say they're women because <laughs> there's now yeah. no, no boundary. Yeah. See, for the Christian, there's a reason why Christians are they were on this from the start. It was a no-brainer because yeah. they believe in <laughs> yeah. they believe in a kind of ontological view. Now I'm sensitive to the fact as a Christian that I'm 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 trying to be intellectually honest here. I don't know if it's the specificity. You get this, I think, through Islam as well, in spite of its difference with Christianity. I wouldn't even say that there, there's no way to get it uh outside of Christianity. I'm not that's not my point at all. But I mean, what do you think about this idea that we've lost a kind of moral architecture? And this is a very Burkean conservative idea that there, there is this kind of almost somewhat intangible function that religion plays in social order. And it's not that anyone's necessarily deliberately pushed religion out and the church has done a good job in undermining itself. You know, abusing children doesn't exactly get people yeah. in the pews and... Um, it, has no, it hasn't always consistently adhered to its morality. But unlike other systems, yeah, it, it actually has a system that it can be judged by under its own own terms. And so I think... Well, politics should the- be able to do that, right? So, there, yeah, I guess I think there's two things to say. Like one is one you sort of mentioned already, like, of course, it's possible for there to be a secular morality that offers up a set of moral principles in roughly the same way that religions have done and so takes that place. Um, And you might even think that political parties would be capable of doing that. I mean, if the big L liberals had a firm commitment to a set of Burke-inspired conservative principles, they could be judged as hypocrites relative to their adherence or not to those principles and they offered up this kind of conception of a good political system or a good set of policies to people that people could vote with their feet on, 
that would be a kind of moral architecture and so too for the left and so too for whatever minority parties. So, and it's not just politics that can do that, right? I mean, moral philosophers are trying to do that. They're trying to, well, some of them, to kind of do that thinking through what does a good life look like? And here's a set of virtues or values or ideas about what creates meaning. I mean, I'm thinking, I don't, I'm not an expert in that area, but I think perfectionism, for example, is a left liberal type moral philosophy that has very specific commitments to a certain idea of the good or a, like a perfect society. So it, it takes a stand rather than just being the, whatever the person happens to choose for their ends is, is good enough. So, yeah, but then you might just push back pragmatically and say, yeah, but religion is the thing that has actually offered that and gotten great numbers of adherents, whereas these secular moralities or political parties, political parties have done pretty well, actually, but secular moralities, like who's reading Parfit? Who's reading Peter Singer? Like who's, no one. Who's reading Raz? Who's even heard of Raz on your podcast? No one. So yeah, um, maybe, <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's not like he's a household name, right? And maybe even perfectionism no. is not a household theory. So um, so that's one thing. The other thing I wanted to say is that you can imagine j- just on the point about like lacking this sort of architecture for for a moral system or a sort of set of unified principles is kind of one of the explanations of why we're in the mess we're in today with with gender stuff. I think part of the responsibility there is a kind of dualism. And if we didn't have that dualism between like the body and the mind and the mind being the thing identified with the self, Mm. we wouldn't be in the trouble that we're in with that topic specifically, because you could have the liberal conception that anyone can be whatever they want. But if you understood anyone to mean a person of that body with those parents of that race and sex can be themselves, (laughs) whatever they that body want to be you wouldn't have people thinking you could become a different race or sex or age or like that you're just an avatar floating free on the internet or you're just a soul trapped within a meat carcass like you wouldn't have any of those what I think are quite silly views you would think yeah I the person this person can go and become a a lawyer instead of a, a philosopher if I want to um So I think some of the problem there is really coming from this bizarre sort of like revival of dualism rather than from like the the lack of morality, whether religious or not per se. Yeah, I mean, I take that point. That's that's very insightful. That said, I mean, you could argue that that that, that kind of mind-body issue you just described from the point of view of a Christian is just a classic secular idea. That's just not a Christian that that's not the way you'll find a lot of people in churches <laughs> uh, thinking. And I, it, the question then is, is it, is, it, is it more difficult to get to that kind of philosophical view again? How are they thinking? I would have thought that Christians are often dualists given they believe in the afterlife. Well, yeah, I guess it depends what we're talking about. But when it comes to the mind-body, see the foundational... Christian doctrine is that everyone's created in the image of God. Yeah. And so there is some kind of unity between the mind and the body and also... So is the thought that they are the body for the time they are on earth and then afterwards they are not. Yeah, but also, again, you've got to think of it in that larger architecture of there's a created order, 
were created with a specific image mm-hmm. uh, for a particular relationship with God. We fit into a cosmic order. And so immediately the idea that you're just this autonomous avatar who self-determines who they are right. is kind of cut off, I would argue, at the very foundational anthropological doctrine and then then you add in the four and so there's this idea that everyone's yes we're made in the image of god which gives everyone a kind of intrinsic dignity and it explains all of the good that humans are capable of you know love and self-sacrifice but we're also fallen and so we're all capable of evil and then the whole christian theological story is about trying to um you know redeem the human being in terms of the created image and their relationship with God. Now, again, forget all of the ontological claims that I know no material is going to go with. And yes, it's dependent on historic texts written by ancient people and intuitions and the like. But but the thing I I think secular society is missing is, this is where, where, funnily enough, your man Jordan Peterson is quite good, (laughs) who's not a Christian, but he he understands that... Why do you keep calling him my man? Well, I've just just I'm just being facetious, you know. I don't, this is probably <laughs> your mate. <laughs> your mate, yeah. That the um, well, he'll be your mate after we do our our session on him. I promise. Okay. But the uh, it, it you know, a lot of people. I think a lot of uh, atheist critics of religion uh, focus on the obvious ill effects here and there, which I'm not going to deny, but they underestimate that it, it produces certain social goods. Part yeah. of in, in what it, it avoids you, certain paths that avoids you going down. And just just a quick point on, on your idea of secular morality. I, I totally agree 100% in theory and in practice. I know I know from, from experience that you can meet, you know, I've, I've met complete dicks who are religious people <laughs> and also wonderful people who are yeah, uh, atheists way. and vice, vice versa, just to make the, the point. I think... That there, there's something uh, that the sort of secular morality is missing that you get from religious morality, and that is it's not institutionalized in ritual yeah. and practices and history. that particularly help children to learn that morality, and that breeds yeah. accountability. So yeah. you may be interested to know, Holly, when you go to most church services, there's a confession at the start of the, the liturgy. There's a collective acknowledgement the people actually say that we have sinned, which is a pretty extraordinary. Uh, like a welcome to country. Well, like a. <laughs> well, similar, uh, but I mean, <laughs> well, not really, because I mean, it's a public confession that. Isn't, I, I, isn't isn't the welcome to country a public confession of white guilt? Well, yeah, it, it, implicitly. Yeah. True. True. But let, let's. You're saying let's, it's explicit. <laughs> Well, the, the point the point is um, just just uh, again it's it's not to do with the metaphysics and all that. I'm just saying just think about the practice of going through your whole life and once a week confessing that you have fallen short from mm-hmm. what you are called to to be with other people beside you at the start I'm, of your. I just can't help like, but think like, that is what is we the left is doing now, right? Like they are they have reinstituted practices of white guilt, male guilt, rich person guilt. We, they are constantly apologizing for the ah, ways in white they feminism. Are they are. But you know what the, yeah, but you know what the immediate bit that comes after the confession is f- forgiveness. Oh, they don't do that. <laughs> exactly. 
Yeah, the, um, no, I take your point that, that that that's like in terms of moral character and really taking seriously like your character and your behavior. That's an amazing ritualized practice. I totally take your point yeah. about that. So I'm simply, just, I'm I'm simply yeah. saying that I think that's what this, that's the thing missing in kind of really embedding a kind of non-religious morality. And I'm, I'm and I'm agreeing with you. It, it's it's conceivable. It's feasible. Perhaps even plausible. But I think what a lot of secularists don't understand is about religion is the is the way that these ideas are put into practice through uh, ritual and community activity that kind of reinforces it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can take that point. I, I'm I'm anyway. sort of I'm, yeah, I'm being slightly silly, but I but it is sort of striking that there seems to be this like toddler version of it emerging among the left. And it's it's a toddler version because it's like it it holds people accountable for things that they're like 500 years ago ancestors did rather than them which is it Burke has some discussion of that right the the folly of holding people accountable for what people with their same surname did 200 years ago kind of seems to be like a a bit of a rant against this like practice of historical injustice or like long-term collective responsibility um but yeah it's like there there are some signs among secular people at least on the left of this attempt to be like here's the things we're guilty about and need to atone for. And here's some ritualized way of trying to remind ourselves of them. And even if they're getting it wrong, what the target of it is and what they should be apologizing for, it is a bit that impulse to be like, we are bad and flawed yeah. in these ways. Yeah. Well, this is one of the ideas in Berkeley that I, I put in the little um, notes of questions I sent you, if I can find it, it might be worth just reading it out here because Burke basically thinks that there is an inherent religious impulse in all human beings and that mm-hmm. if you remove religion, which was one of the uh, aims and agendas of the revolutionaries in France, you're just going to create a void that will be filled uh, with something else. Um, I could read out the whole quote, but I mean, that, that basically that is so ties funny. what we're talking about back to Burke. I wonder what you think about that because you no, seem you should to read be... The, you should read the quote. Oh, I'll, I'll the, read and it. this is very funny because I didn't read this before I tweeted last night, but I tweeted that bit because I oh, thought really? it was so hilarious in its connection to the current gender identity ideology. The end of this bit that you're about to read, I, yeah. I tweeted it as like, someone from 1790 predicting yeah. trans activism. <laughs> Something like this. So, well, that, yeah. That, that, tell it, tell that's it. the thing is that there, there's this common thesis these days that I don't think has something to it, that what we're looking at is is a kind of uh, the emergence of various pseudo-religions uh, on the left and that that religious impulse is being channeled through political veins. And it does, it is, you know, whether whether it's causal or not, it, it, it does uh, coincide with the retreat of traditional <laughs> religion. So, and... It's extraordinary because Burke seems like he more or less predicts this a couple of hundred years ago. Anyway, here's the quote. We know, and it is our pride to know, that man is by his constitution a religious animal, that atheism is against not only our reason but our instincts, and that it cannot prevail long. But if, in the moment of riot and in a drunken delirium from the hot spirit drawn out of the alembic of hell, which in France is now so furiously boiling, we should uncover our nakedness by throwing off that Christian religion, which has hitherto been our boast and comfort, and one great source of civilization amongst us and among many other nations. We are apprehensive, being well aware that the mind will not endure a void, 
that some uncouth, pernicious and degrading superstition might take its place. <laughs> it's really perfect, yeah. And this is, um, I mean, I think Douglas Murray advanced this idea in his Madness of Crowds book that I, I don't know if he knew he got it from Burke or was following in the tradition of Burke here, but like he, he was saying this might be one explanation of this kind of woke identity politics stuff that's going on. Like we just need meaning and we lost we lost that sense of meaning when we lost organized religion and people are just sort of desperately searching for something and identity politics and the kind of woke left, they offer it. So of course people are taking to that like ducks to water because they want something rather than nothing. And I think that's been very much like taken up and popularized among the like heterodox reaction to what's going on. So yeah, it was hard not to recognize that idea in what Burke is saying here. Like, and I'm sure we can all come up with our own examples of how, like, yeah, in this vacuum of of meaning, people have come up with all sorts of, like, silly ways to give themselves community and tradition yeah. and and meaning. Um, but I guess... I the, mean, the best, exa- the best example people cite is is the, the sort of most... the extremities of the climate movement, which right. has a lot of religious um, elements to it. It's, there's an apocalypse and end of world right. scenario. There's a need for salvation. There's a, there's a need for atonement and yep. punishment. And it's a kind of cosmic level struggle. Yep. Yeah. That's almost transcendent and you can do your good and evil of... with your climate deniers and your oil corporations and That's your right. Yeah. And no, it has I a whole host of yeah. practices, you know, recycling and yep. you can the kind of way you live can be uh, wrapped around that. Now that the interesting thing is I would say from a conservative point of view, and I and I, I do agree with this because my Christian faith kind of to go back to you know, I, I believe actually we were created for relationship with God, and so we will we will that that desire drives a lot of human activity, whether people are conscious of it or not. I mean, you can reject God, obviously, but I, I think you will unconsciously <laughs> try to find try to replace him with some other kind of substantive uh, meaning, some kind of. But I guess that's the question, right? Like the question is whether it's true that man is by his constitution a religious animal. And so that's the explanation of why if you try to do without him, all this other weird stuff is going to start coming, creeping in to take its place. Or whether we're just humans who exist in a social and cultural tradition that has had religion in it and it's still got its tentacles almost everywhere. And of course, that's going to have implications like we're in the mind habits of this kind of behavior or these practices are rewarding in a certain way or there's a lot of inertia but we could do things differently we're not it's not our nature it's not our constitution mm. but we just have to like have the right social framework in place that it will create a different n- nature quote unquote in us like we are immensely plastic and we can be many different ways mm. so I, I don't know how you would mediate that dispute between the person that says with Burke, we are by our constitution religious animals, and the person who says, obviously we're not, but we just need to be given the chance to really flourish in a genuinely secular social framework. And so far we yeah. we haven't quite done that because we haven't quite fully broken away from religions. I, I would say that uh, someone with my perspective cannot rule out what you just said. It, it's it's certainly conceivable. Uh I I would say that the weight of history and sociology 
is with Burke and me. So, okay, we don't know for sure. And perhaps when we're dead in 200 years, I'll look back and listen to this and say this whole conversation was was silly in this kind of (laughs) religious world where everyone's just sort of perfectly rational and and maybe they will be because they'll be cyborgs or something. But the... It, it is it is very suggestive, is it not, that the right when traditional religion declines and people lose their faith in what we used to think of as actual religion, there's this new zealotry emerges in all these different political ways, right down to the burnus, right down to heresy trials that you've been subject to. I don't think it is that surprising because that could be explained by the habit of it, right? Um, mm-hmm. If you take the long view of our like evolutionary history, what, what were the like hunter-gatherer tribes believing in? They probably just had bad science, which would be mythology, which mm-hmm. might have looked kind of spiritual, but was also trying to explain things like weather patterns. Um, so maybe it's more proto-science than proto-religion. Mm-hmm. Then you have organized religion, which kind of does certain sorts of jobs um, in our like social organizing. And then, yeah, you have stuff now where it looks like people coming out of the grip of religion are susceptible to zealotry. But I think I don't see any real sociological evidence that that's our nature. And I also think science is young, right? So one of the reasons we started to like that religion starts to lose its grip is that we got better at scientific explanations of the world so we didn't need kind of mystical or spiritual ones and that's a kind of new thing like atheism's not that old i've just been listening to the is it called the stopes trial about the like oh the um, stopes trial yeah exactly like super interesting kind of fight between these like yeah the new atheists and the the old kind of religious order and yeah so i think we're going to need to give that you know several hundred years more to play out to see what kind of animal humans really are and what is necessary to our like social organization. Um, I just, yeah, I think we don't have enough evidence yet of that. Yeah. I think that's a fair point. I can, I can appreciate that. Holly, one, one issue just before we run out of time. Yeah. You you did mention class earlier and Burke's yeah. classism. And I, and I, <laughs> classism is that even a word yeah yeah it loves a bit of social hierarchy yeah well uh so do i actually so so the i'm gonna do you know where that bit is about the hairdresser i'm trying to find it the hairdresser no i I missed that (laughs) bit but i can read out a couple of quotes you see i think burke is in favor of an open aristocracy and I, I would translate a, that as aristocracy in the Greek sense of the term, so rule by the best. Yeah. Here are, here are a couple of quotes, and let me perhaps let me tease out how I read it. And I think this could be interesting because we, we may disagree here. Yeah. Uh, he says, there is no qualification for government but virtue and wisdom. Everything ought to be open, but not indifferently to every man. Yes. If rare merit be the rarest of all things, it ought to pass through some sort of probation. Now, they're just a little couple of snippy snippy pieces. I think what he's really saying here is an observation that, that I think goes back to the ancient Greeks, which is uh, there is a – and this is where conservatives uh, – are willing to slay a sacred cow of our modern world, 
because equality, and you've mentioned it a few times, or egalitarianism. Yeah. Or, but let's just stick with equality is also one of the sort of ideological virtues alongside liberty and freedom that we we absolutely yeah. so important to our identity. Yeah. And I think uh, Russell Kirk does this most shockingly in terms of frankly. Uh, Russell Kirk, that great interpreter of Burke, of course, as I said earlier, who just says, look, there's no equality in, in human life. You know, one person's tall, one person's short. We have different uh, sort of IQs. One yeah. person's born into a wealthy, loving family. Another person gets abused as a child. One person grows up in poverty. And in spite of all of the efforts to address this, there's really there are great limitations in what you can do um, at the sort of genetic level. And I think he would also point out that I think even the most radical leftists would admit that a psychopathic serial killer is perhaps not fit to be the prime minister of a country, even if in theory it's open, it should be open to all people. There's a reason we don't put my 11-year-old son in the role of a supreme justice, and I feel like you're more, rolling. unless it's America, do we put senile people in charge of? Yeah, but so I there's think, just a basic recognition that I think you're rolling two totally different points together there. Like, I don't think anyone on the left is going to disagree with you that people have like different capacities for intelligence or like accomplishment, they're just going to want equal opportunity. And so you're, it's almost like you're, you're picking the wrong fight, right? <laughs> like, so can I give but, but you- Holly, But Holly, just, but is, is it really about equal opportunity? Because my, my, my point is to say, my point is actually to challenge that. So clearly just, minor, we, minors shouldn't have the same opportunities as adults because they're just not of course, formed can enough I, yet to take on. Yeah, go, sorry. Because there's two bits, right? And I think they really make this point about the two different points. So here he is on page of my penguin penguin version, 243. He says, as to their behavior to the inferior classes, they appear to me to comport themselves toward them with good nature, blah, blah, blah. That is generally practiced with us in the intercourse between the higher and lower ranks of life. There's comments like this throughout the book. Yeah. He absolutely believes in social hierarchy. Then yeah. here's a comment earlier on page 138. The occupation of a hairdresser, or of a working tallow chandler, which I think is a candle maker, cannot be a matter of honor to any person, to say nothing of a number of other more servile employments. So he is absolutely, at various points in this book, a fan of social hierarchy. Like there are worse professions and worse ranks or classes of people. That is very different from saying... Um, so then the next page to that is, I think, the equal opportunity point, which you agree with and I agree with. He says, woe to the country which would madly and impiously reject the service of the talents and virtues, civil, military, or religious, that are given to grace and to serve it, and would condemn to obscurity everything formed to different luster and glory around the state. So I think, of course, we can take the point different people have different capacities and we should put people in like jobs and roles that suit them. And we should want to like respect intelligence and not like artificially handicap greatness in the service of some like bizarre notion of everybody being exactly the same. But I think everyone, agree like everyone agrees with that. 
The point is whether we want social hierarchy and thinking of certain classes of people as worse or inferior. And the egalitarian impulse, which I share, is like, yuck, that's gross. Like, <laughs> that's the thing I said right at the start of the recording that, like, that, that I read that as really gross. So mm. I feel like you're rolling those two points together in what you were saying before. Yeah. So let me, let me try and clarify a bit because some um, that's helpful what you just said. So let's come back to this notion of social hierarchy because it could, could be a bit of a language difference yeah. here. Uh, and to clarify, I, I'm in favor of what I would, or, or not, it's, it's really not favor. It's a question. This is, see, this is the difference between the conservatives. So I'm, I'm trying to think rationally and empirically about what, what is and what can be versus what, what, what has to be by constraint. So I think we agree, agree that you can never remove, you can never achieve equality of capacity nor remove inequality of capacity. Agreed, yeah. There are certainly things we can do on opportunity and I, and I agree with that and I support broadening the opportunity. But in reality, I think, uh, and this is, this is where I think liberals and progressives are blinded, that we live in an extremely hierarchical society where we just convince we just lie to ourselves about the equality so in your profession holly it, and and mine it couldn't be more elite you have to have a phd to lecture it's highly competitive you have to have a track record of publications and teaching experience yeah no one's hiring the candle maker yeah. to do your job because it's recognized that it requires an enormous amount of skill and learning and sure you don't want to prevent someone doing a PhD because of the color of their skin, their sexuality or whatever. But let's face it, you and I know only 1% of people on the planet have the capacity, the interest, the desire to actually do the blood, sweat and tears of getting the PhD. And even not everyone that gets the PhD, you know this when you supervise PhDs and when you examine them, really have it, right? Even if yeah. you can and get it. Now, all society works like that, you know. You just think about how professionalized we are. And so we, we, I think we comfort ourselves with this notion that anyone could become a lawyer and an accountant and a judge when in reality uh, it's like maybe 50, 60% genetics, then throwing 20% being born on the right side of the, the tracks. And the exceptions, and I'm all in favor of the, of the exceptions. This is the whole point of an open aristocracy. So you don't assume, but just because you're born to a well-to-do family or the son of a judge that you're going to have what it takes and you do not overlook the poor person uh, from a minority group or the son or daughter of a migrant who could be the could end up the most brilliant judge in the history of your your country but i'm just talking about i i've i've i'm suggesting that i i think we lie to ourselves about the what we can do on that opportunity um factor because we don't factor in the sort of impervial the the sort of uh genetic element which is a very difficult truth to accept i'll admit uh, i'm not happy about it this is why i say i, I don't <clears throat> it's not so much that i'm in favor of it's just try i'm trying to be honest about the situation which is why i don't I think, even understand um, why you're being cautious about this like if we had a society where we had perfect equality of opportunity and only 1% of all the people were judges, 
but the judges, lots of the judges were women and people of color because we weren't discriminating anymore and we didn't have pipeline problems created by like poverty and lack of education. And all you're saying is that you you don't mind inequality in social esteem where we think it's great to be a judge and less great to be a candle maker. I don't know that many leftists that would disagree with you. So I'm just not sure what, like if that's what you mean by social hierarchy, I think you're sort of strawmanning the liberal. <laughs> I don't think the liberal mm. thinks that people aren't ever different. They just think that wealthy white men are not the people that should always be occupying the most esteemed positions. And maybe there are some people in the leftist sort of tradition who want, I mean, I can, I've certainly seen a case for like equality of esteem or equality of value. Like why do we think the judge deserves so much higher of a salary than the rubbish collector when the rubbish collection job is more yuck, like, and the judge is getting more meaning out of her work. So I, I'm certainly like open to having that conversation too. Like, should we want social hierarchy, even if that only means hierarchy of esteem and social standing in terms of what contributions people make to society? Maybe we shouldn't. And maybe I'm open to hearing why we, we should be egalitarians there as well. But I think a lot of people on the left are open to yeah, a meritocracy and inequality in esteem or kind of recognition, so long as the positions that have that esteem or recognition are genuinely open to all. Yeah, I think just, I mean, social hierarchy is not the language I would use myself because personally I I don't really actually see any difference between a judge and a and a garbage collector. This 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 is the virtue right. of the. But then you're anti Burke, right? Burke doctrine. Burke because saying they're different, and so they're, oh yeah, yeah. No, not no, with- no, I, I I disagree with Burke on on the. I think he does take this uh, classism too far. I'm taking out a particular insight that I think is an insight, and but I would say I'm in favour of a hierarchy of virtue and wisdom in the sense that I want. Personally, I want to be ruled by the wisest and the most virtuous, and not everyone is. And that, that is a Burkean well, point. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I don't know what how you foster a system in, that that encourages that because I also want to balance it with freedom. So I don't want some virtue wisdom test before you're allowed to run uh, for politics. But I, but I, I have but that to just be honest. Seems like a different point again, because that's about like who should our rulers be, not about what our societies hierarchies of esteem and social standing should look like that's not about there being classes that's just about like who would make a good ruler and on what grounds yeah but don't all these points add up to having to accept and be willing to say that you accept that inequality some level of inequality is baked into the system and so then it becomes about discriminating and identifying areas where we can lift people up and areas where there's really nothing you can do because unless you think everyone is just perfectly capable of the same virtue and all they need is the right to do the right virtue course. Um, and that, that yeah, you're right. When I talk to intelligent people on the left, they will concede this. Yeah. But I never – it, it seems to be completely missing from their rhetoric. And what I hear is equality, equality, equality. And I worry slightly about the – the sort of utopian message that, that that is given to kids, and you see it in our parenting. So every every parent, every school now says, you know, 
you can be an astronaut. You can't count to 10 and you're hopeless at maths and you could probably never go to uni, but of course you could be an astronaut and you could be the prime minister, even though you have say, seem like none of the actual quality, sort of inherent qualities that might make you a good But he's a kid, right? Minister. So like what's the harm in tell, like telling kids, giving them as much faith and confidence in themselves as possible and seeing where they land? It's not obvious to me that that's bad parenting or that it would be better to be like, oh, you're probably shit and you should just aim at mediocrity. <laughs> like, like, just let them see how great they can be and then be realistic with them when they're adults if they seem to lack all talent and virtue, you know? Until they grow up and say, I'm going to be a woman. <laughs> well, that's well, different. Like, like, Wait, telling them they like could I'm, be I'm... absolutely anything with no constraint is not the same as saying you could be a brilliant mathematician even though you're bad at maths. Work hard, yeah, but see, but see, cultivate your talents. Come... Say I'm suggesting they come as a package. This is a cultural system we work in now, and I think I, I think they're connected in that we we have this. This all goes back to this idea of the the sort of uh, unconstrained human person that can realize any dream, be anything, pursue anything, and that all we've got to do is create the opportunity, and anything can happen. I think I think that is. I'm not saying it's just causal in any sim- simple fact fashion but uh, but it is to me not coincidental that the age in which uh gender suddenly becomes fluid in complete contravention of everything we understand about biology to your point about science uh we, we're kind of this liberty and equality and opportunity thing i i just i i think as a conservative that it has a sting in the tail, and I want to stress I'm not I'm not in the Birkin sort of thing of like let's keep the the damn candle maker in his place and make sure he never um you know doesn't get big ideas and think that he might be able to drive a truck one day or something I mean or you know get an education for for all I know the the son of the candle maker who's forced to be a candle maker could be the most brilliant philosopher mm-hmm. of his age so I, I certainly want to I want a system. That certainly doesn't put barriers in place and encourages people with the requisite talent and gifts and interests yeah. uh, to pursue those courses. I, 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 I just think there's a kind of realism here that I get from my conservatism that um, that I find people on the left uh, balk at or feel uncomfortable with. Yeah, I mean, I, I that maybe is your experience, right? I just maybe have different leftist friends, or like I'm in a different bubble, or yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I just, I'm not recognizing much of what you're saying uh, as leftism as I know it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could be wrong. Yeah, we both could be wrong. Okay, moving right along. That went nowhere. I think we need to wrap up soon because I'm getting a little fatigued and I really need to pee. Okay, okay, okay. Holly, so you can go pee and uh, deal with your fatigue. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show once again for reading books, reflections, for an invigorating and stimulating conversation. I hope I can get you back for Jordan Peterson at some stage in (laughs) in the future. Yeah, let's Uh, do it. That'll be fun. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, no, it's been a it's been a pleasure.